Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. I'm JBD, and it's go time. It's Go Time, a weekly podcast where we discuss interesting topics around the Go programming language, the community, and everything in between. If you currently write Go or aspire to, this is the show for you. It's episode number 22 of Go Time. Today's episode is sponsored by Linode and Code School. And today on the show, we have myself, Eric St. Martin. We have Carlicia Campos. Say hello, Carlicia. Hi, everybody. And she's still laughing from everything that happened before show. <laughs> I can hear it. <laughs> I'm trying to hold it back. And Brian Kettleson uh, was not able to make it, but today standing in for him, we have Corey Lanou. Say hello, Corey. Hey, everybody. And our special guest today is a core contributor to Go and familiar to probably just about everybody. And I'll go ahead and let her give her own introduction, JVD. Um, hello. So I work on Go. Um, I actually have been contributing to the project for the past years and uh, just started to contribute as a full as a part of my full-time job again. My role in the team is pretty unique. Um, so I wouldn't say that like I am, you know, contributing code uh, to the project at this point. So um, the team wants me to be a user, a PowerGo user. So looking things from the perspective of the user, keep writing, you know, code against Go rather than contributing more code to Go. Um, I'm kind of like a, you know, typical gopher, but live in maybe one release cycle in the future and exposed to tip, you know, development going on the tip and what is coming up next. Uh, my responsibility is particularly given feedback about usability API design, where, you know, things require more thinking from the user's perspective. I recently started to do this job and I was late for 1.8, but will be more involved in the future releases. And, you know, it also depends on how many user facing critical changes are coming in. So, yeah, that's what I do. So what types of um, applications are you developing? Because it, it seems like you, you do a lot of stuff in hardware and kind of audio and mobile. Mm -hmm. So is this kind of tackling each of these areas and, and just trying to build applications and see what you run up against? Mm -hmm. um, I was originally working on for Google Cloud and um, somehow bootstrapped all the cloud libraries, um, you know, some sort of like um, good API design and idiomatic libraries and everything around, you know, cloud products and how we can actually like interact with the ecosystem so much better. And I kind of like moved to another role to work on the mobile project where, you know, the scope of the mobile project was more like first uh, making the runtime running both on iOS and Android and then, you know, come up with some libraries that will work on those two platforms and providing some tool tooling similar to GoTool uh, that will allow you to build mobile applications rather than just a binary. Uh, and I was involved in that um, as a as a continuation of that work. Uh, last year, I was working on uh, Android team uh, with Android team, and Android is going through some sort of um, you know 
reorganization when it comes to, you know, they're building some tools and some more structure to build uh, custom Android kernels. And uh, the team also wanted to expose GPIO um, and, you know, other peripheral communication interfaces uh, from Android and uh, would like, wanted Android to work on popular Linux development boards. So I was involved in there and just like trying to figure out what, how we can make Go as a first class citizen for Android for, you know, more like targeting on uh, their embedded markets and what they're envisioning for the future. So this is sort of like people who are using kind of like Odroid boards and uh, Beagle board blacks and things like that, that that you can kind of get Android on. Yeah, this is just Linux boards and Android team is has been I think like this has been such a historically much requested feature to to be able to extend Android with board specific, you know, hardware abstraction. Like they what is historically requested was a more extendable hardware abstraction layer. So you can contribute more, you know, board specific things and uh, extend the capabilities and, you know, deploy Android to other, uh, you know, billions of Linux boards around. So we're, Android team is trying to meet that goal by making it more configurable so any manufacturer can take Android and, you know, make it working on their Linux board. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Brian's been playing a little bit with uh, writing Go on a Raspberry Pi for his smoker. Mm-hmm. 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 Oh, nice. Just, yeah, 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 yeah. That's awesome. That's yeah. just too much fun. Smoke, smoking <laughs> dinner with, with Go. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. I love, I just love creativity with that. And we've seen a bunch of that stuff too. You're constantly yeah. showing stuff off on Twitter that you're... Oh, yeah. There are billions of projects. I have billions of projects. I personally like physical buttons a lot. So I just like realized that my entire world is surrounded by software and like, you know, touch screens and things. That's why I was just replacing things with hardwired, you know, physical buttons where I feel more comfortable with. And like there was tons of things to do. And uh, due to the like relationship with Brillo project, the the Android project is called Brillo project, by the way. Android uh, focusing on the embedded aspects is called Brillo. You know, we were ordering so many stuff from China every month. We had like this huge, you know, repository of devices around and sensors and all sorts of displays and things. It was really fun times. You know, so it it occurred to me one day because I was looking at like the piles of stuff I have here because I have a similar thing. Like when I'm tinkering with electronics, why am I going to, you know, buy one chip from Adafruit or SparkFun or something when I can just buy like a hundred of them for a similar yeah. price from China. Yeah. And then all this stuff acquires and it's sitting there and it's in drawers. And it occurred to me one day when I saw something you were posting, it's like, I wonder what your stash looks like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> we created a couple of, I think, like uh, the best, you know, combination of things because um, I think, you know, once you're working on well i was working on a developer facing product and we were also like trying to come up with a set we can you know propose as a de facto uh combination of those you know little devices so the users can run the tutorials with them and um yeah we've been thinking too much about them like thinking about designing custom things and it's it's been so much fun so Corey and uh carlisa do either of you have experience kind of tinkering with the hardware side of things or embedded I did the Gopher Gala last year 
uh, Nathan had a project and he uh, I joined to help him a little bit with also somebody else here from San Diego, Ravi. And so we, I got to play with the Raspberry Pi and uh, we, I, we put in code that actually made the Raspberry Pi uh, use a motion sensor. And that was very cool. I sort of have a, an irrational aversion to hardware because I, my impression is that hardware always doesn't, they don't work when I touch them. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's completely <laughs> irrational. So I try to stay away from hardware in general, although you give it looks like pretty a cool. static charge that just messes up all electronics. <laughs> uh, yes, but it's like that it, it's supposed to have a button and I don't find the button in this thing, ridiculous things. But at any rate, I thought the Raspberry Pi is small and I could handle it. So I, I really fell in love with it, but I didn't play much with it after that. One of the things that I think I loved the most was was learning how simple serial protocols are. And then starting, mm -hmm. the, then what you do is you buy yourself a logic analyzer and then you mm -hmm. start finding random pieces of electronics and trying to, to find the chips and what the yeah. serial ports are and then yeah. start like peeking in on what it's doing. <laughs> <laughs> are, you, are you doing any serious debugging that way or like, is it just how you, you know, investigate what is going on or? It's more from just a like reverse engineering standpoint, yeah, yeah. like yeah. how does this yeah. work? And I've I've tried a couple of times to to send my own commands and stuff on regular boards mm -hmm. and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That, that's usually where it gets not so simple because ordering comes into play. Re reverse engineering any sort of protocol is hard because you got to kind of understand. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 But like, you know, a logic analyzer is the printf of I think, you know, working with these protocols and people were so surprised that I have scopes and like, you know, all this logic analyzers around but like, you know, it's just like the mandatory requirements. So yeah. Yeah. And that's, yeah. Let's say if you, so you start with something like a Raspberry Pi or, or Arduino, and you can look at that and you might be able to debug from a website and things like that, the commands that you're sending, but ultimately you end up like on GPIO pins and communicating yeah. with other hardware. And then at that point you're cut off and yeah. it's really yeah. painful to like, try to get it to blink a light, like a number of times when it hits somewhere and debug that way. So typically you want to kind of just probe in with a logic analyzer and, and look at the communication. Yeah. And, you know, sort of like trying to understand what is going on with the, you know, kernel driver. I, I've, I've been exposed to a couple of bugs. It was impossible to like get anything done without actually looking at the final output of the signal. I think it's fun for people to learn at the hardware level too. Like I love having oscilloscopes mm -hmm. and, you know, plugging it on this, you know, an audio wire and, and looking at yeah. what audio actually looks like. Yeah. When, when I was a child, my father introduced us into signal processing by just like looking at oscilloscope, you know, output. And I gathered so much information from there by just like, uh, we had a, I think like, I remember, uh, we had a very small, um, set of like, you know, we were just like producing some uh, sine wave or like, you know, so to then looking at it and changing the frequency. And it just like gave me so much. And then um, he also introduced us like bitwise modulations and things like that. And like visualization was is just perfect. Like, I mean, um, I think as a as a part of our education, we should also like encourage more of this way of thinking by looking at what is going on and reverse engineering it. Yeah, I, I was teaching my son a while back um, using an oscilloscope. We made uh, almost like a theremin 
uh, just a 555 timer and a little a light sensor. Yeah. And he had a blast with it until we got annoyed with the high pitched sound that it made. <laughs> I didn't quite think that one through that he would love this thing and want to play with it. And yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, so is, is hardware kind of your, your true passion and kind of where it meets software? Or is this just kind of like something you do to break away from the software side? Or? Yeah, that's more of like the latter. I, I just, you know, um, have a full-time job, which is already boring. And sometimes I just, um, I think my entire projects have grown uh, with the necessity of me having to design or like, you know, prototype uh, hardware for my musical, in, you know, experimentation. And um, I, I still do some sort of, you know, you know, trying to work on, um, try, tr you know, trying to build um, instruments rather than, you know, working on other, like, I, I, I don't know how to say this, but like, I, my entire music is very experimental and also involves um, hardware I invent as well as software. So it's more like a, you know, side project, like a weekend project where I kind of like escape from my daily routine. Yeah, I think that typically be, is what I do too. Mine sits for months on end sometimes. I just, I think I like thinking about that I might one day have the time to work on some secret project I have in my head. Yeah. And then I create, I create new ones without ever finishing the one prior. It's like, oh, I want, I want to help with uh, building the, the barbecue controller, the, the pit <laughs> controller. And then we're playing with RC cars the one day and it's like, oh, I'm totally building a traction <laughs> control system for my RC car. And I think that's the beauty of all this, like, maker, you know, thinking. Um, it's just, I think we are always in this constantly, you know, work in progress projects, but, like, we invent by looking at what is going on, what is in common, and I, I think we're doing this for the joy rather than trying to achieve anything. So I think that's fair. I want to go back a little bit, and I didn't jump in right away because I was looking for the link. Eric once mentioned a course, I guess it's what it is called NAND to Tetris, and I'm super looking forward to doing this. I think I'm going to be able to do it next year. It's basically a course that takes you from the very basics in step-by-step -step all the way up to building a modern computer. And the good news for me is that it's all simulation. I don't have to, to deal with hardware. <laughs> Nice. I, I personally don't have anything against hardware, like I was saying, so they just don't work with me. So I don't know. I have this impression. But in any case, <laughs> it's all simulation. You don't have to. And it gets expensive, too, I think, yeah. buying these uh, one-off things. But so it, this is really cool. And I think, and I'm saying this because I also think it's very important for, to, for us to learn a, a little bit more about what it is that's below of what we are doing. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I totally agree with like uh, in order to, you know, contribute to the first um, argument saying that, like, I think simulation is really important for Brillo. My coworkers were more passionate about building a graphical interface where, you know, just kind of like give people how, how to like, you know, what it feels to work with GPIO rather than. Uh, work in anything else. Uh, the number one reason is uh, making hardware working and making sure it's working correctly. You know, getting it to a state where everything is working is just really hard. So you just want to have a feel, how it feels, what the APIs look, how easy it is, uh, without touching any of that stuff. 
So I think it's just really valuable to have simulation going on. Yeah. I think that there's cheap ways people can do electronics too. And I want to say it's the Make Electronics book. It's like learning through discovery or something like that. And like the number of components that you need is pretty small. And I think it's it's nice to have that hands-on and for people to kind of learn like like what happens, you know, and, and what a, a burnt capacitor smells like. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's something interesting about doing that. But the Nan to Tetris book that Carlicia was talking about, I love that book. It's the one thing I don't like is the chapters go really fast. So you, you kind of need supplemental um, learning material, but it starts at kind of like gates and lo- Boolean logic and mm-hmm. how to build a NAND gate and then how those are kind of assembled, you know. And then you can basically build the ALU of a computer using nothing but NAND gates. And then it kind of builds up there where you kind of have your own assembly language and then your own assembler and then kind of like an object oriented language and then a virtual mm-hmm. machine. And each stage is kind of the thing that I love about the book is each stage is kind of on its own and they have mm-hmm. like a way of unit testing your stuff. So when you're trying to build your uh, assembly language, you, it has inputs, expected inputs and outputs so it can validate it. and. So it's a it's a really cool experience for people who are interested in learning kind of from the hardware level up into, you know, the code that we write every day. And they have a, a course on Coursera, too. Oh, do they They have it on Coursera now? Yeah. It, so they have the book and they have a course on Coursera. Yeah, Brian. Uh, so Brian didn't uh, isn't on the show because of, of choppy Internet connection where he's out in London, but he's heckling us from Slack. And he uh, just reminded me of the person who built the ALU in Minecraft using the same book as his as his uh, approach, which was really interesting. It would like you you set the binary number with torches, and that goes through like all these little <laughs> things, and the cows move, and this happens, <laughs> and then you go to the other side, and you can read the output. <laughs> I'll find a link to the video where somebody is like messing with it, but it's it's hilarious, and you wonder like. Who sits here and thinks of that? Like, oh, I just did this NAND to Tetris thing. You know what I should build an ALU with? Minecraft. Very <laughs> <laughs> uh, cool. I kind of feel like we were the lost generation who has like some sort of privilege to understand everything from like end to end. Because, you know, when I was a child, the personal computers were so small. And you can open, like, I remember having uh, Spectrum. Uh, I was a Spectrum user, and its manual was basically starting with basic programming language. And the next chapter was, you know, the computer architecture kind of, like, gives you all the uh, main components and how they work and how they interact with each other. And, you know, the final chapter was, like, you know, instruction set and, like, how can you write optimizations and things. And um, by looking at like the current complexity of the things uh, i think you know our, our current generation doesn't have the same privilege to learn understand everything from end to end uh, what raspberry pi was trying to do was trying to you know make things more accessible i think they're you know i think all the linux boards are doing a better job now but everything is just too complex at this point it's just so many layers and it's so easy to get lost when I introduce myself that I'm supposed to be a, a Power Go user and, you know, giving people, the team, usability API uh, design feedback, um, maybe initiating libraries and tooling to fill the gaps. Uh, if there's a, you know, e- experimentation is required, um, probably I, I need to run, you know, experiment. I have more time to run experimentation. So it's part of my responsibility. 
And I'm still in this transitioning period. And while I'm there, I'm just trying to listen to community, try to listen community, gather some feedback, actual, you know, actionable items. Uh, one of the things that like um, Brian was mentioning is this feedback around tooling. Uh, I want to understand rather than, um, you know, specific bugs or, you know, complaints, what are the biggest picture problems? Um, if we would like to rethink about tooling, what we should fix and how we should fix. This involves understanding of the current workflow of the users and what is missing there and, you know, trying to understand more of a bigger picture rather than, you know, focusing on little things. And um, I'm kind of surprised by the number of people who actually returned back to me and wrote about how they feel about certain things or like really big, you know, things that maybe needs to be redesigned or can be, you know, supported by experimental tools or extension tools. So I'm, I'm really excited to hear more. And I do believe as a, as a community or as a language, we will never succeed if we cannot, you know, create this type of feedback channel and question what we're doing uh, once a while. I'm wondering if you are using any guideline or if you're trying to go in a specific direction to avoid having the vocal minority speak for the issues that are not the priority for maybe the majority of the people. Or maybe you're looking into having usability as the guide for what you are doing or any other guideline that you are using to make sure that you are achieving your goal no matter who's responding to your requests? I think absolutely. Uh, the goal of this project is not trying to understand what are the established users are trying to do. So let me give you uh, how I a little bit like, you know, inside of how I see things, uh, because I think there are too many reasons why people learn a language or just like, you know, get involved in a language. The first one is, uh, personal development or interest, I think, you know, this is what mainly made the initial Go community. So this type of people have more tolerance and, you know, they're more passionate about the challenges for the sake of learning. Uh, the other thing is the other type of people comes there just because it's a requirement. Uh, it's enforced by your, you know, employer, school, whatever. And I think our goal, um, our community was dominated by the first group that uh, we couldn't really question too much about how how do we treat to newcomers? Um, what is missing? Or like from a totally, you know, person that is out, you know, not coming from the same background that we communi our community is coming from, what is missing? Um, I think our language and tooling is just like so totally built on conventions, historical conventions, but are we doing anything to communicate them? Uh, are people getting lost just because they cannot make the connections? I really like Katrina's uh, talk at GopherCon this year because um, she was really pretty clear about this. When I looked at the spec, I understood everything, but I didn't was I was not able to make the connections and didn't was not able to you know light up all the different topics around uh, the sentence I was reading. I think it's generally true for everything, not for the language spec. Uh, when it comes to APIs, when it comes to what we consider good readability or tooling, I think 
we are coming from a typical background and everything is so much clear to us, but not true for, you know, the vast majority um, in the tech. And have you been able to at least have some insights about things that can be done to make that better? I think my, um, so my audience um, is a little bit restricted. Um, I, I cannot really go to people who are coming from totally different, you know, backgrounds and I cannot enforce them to use Go and give them feedback. The only way I see, which might be valuable, but it's still not ideal because it's a small subset of the same culture on itself. I think, you know, new graduates or people who are at Google who really believes that this language is not really, you know, productive or fitting their worldview might be a good place to seek for that type of feedback. That That's the only practical, easy and, you know, actionable thing I can work on. And I, I'm considering it. I think the main goal of rethinking about these problems is to make uh, newcomers happy rather than, you know, working for the existing users because existing users already already know what they need to do. So when you talk about newcomers, I'm curious if you're primarily targeting um, like the traditional uh, newcomers that are just coming off of projects that Go is going to just work better for, or are you actually really targeting people coming from uh, the different fields of technology, technology that Go is not already being used in? I'm um, particularly targeting people who are you know, either have experience or inexperience in another language um, and just trying to use Go as a replacement. So it sounds to me that one challenge that you have is to help people see the benefits of Go without going through so much, too much hassle because people can read a blog post and say, oh, Go is very productive and Go is very fast and other other positives, but they they still have to commit to trying it out mm-hmm. and maybe make making that gap shorter from the moment they they get exposed to the idea of using Go to the moment that they actually do something with Go and see the results. I guess where your challenge is is in making that gap as short as possible. Yeah, this kind of also relates to the you know the first initial idea I had. How I see people. I, I still see people who already believe that this language could be valuable for themselves and trying to invest time in this language has a little bit more tolerance. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I understand what you're saying, but um, I, I mean, I don't have a really clear answer to how we should like gather feedback from people we don't know and people who are not necessarily talking to us. Maybe what we need to do is uh, more of like, you know, typical user studies where we just put people who absolutely have no background in our material and see how well they're going and how they feel as a feedback. Do you think it's the language features that is the time that we have to spend the investment on for newcomers? Um, And I say that because when I came to Go, everything was easy. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I mean that from a standpoint of like using other languages you know, there was a lot of work. There was a, a big environment to set up. You had to have everything just right. You had to have a special editor. Uh, and then once you got it going, the language syntax was very difficult. And all those things in Go are really easy. 
Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious, you know, what, you know, and it, it sounds funny, right? It's like, we're trying to optimize for these newcomers and get them to onboard faster. And I think that's great. But I also feel like it's, it's phenomenal compared to most other languages already. Uh, so I'm curious, you know, what aspects do, do you think that can be improved the most? I'd like to kind of jump in here, too, because there's one area that I think can improve. And like when we look at like our the, the walkthrough online, the, the Go tutorial, it goes through a lot of the language features. But some of the stuff is not necessarily approachable just in domain knowledge. Um, like one instance I know of somebody who was going through the tutorial and got hung up on one of the things. And I think it was just working with uh, slices or arrays or something like that. But the object of that particular chapter was to build bitmaps or something like that. And it was really confusing just understanding what the domain model was. And then a lot of people are used to learning in kind of these bite-sized chunks. And and one of our sponsors actually, Code School, uh, in the Ruby world, they had like the Rails for Zombies thing, right? Where, and, and people could connect with that. Like they're building this little game and it deals with zombies and things like that. And it makes things a lot more approachable because understanding the, the domain isn't there anymore. It's not understanding what do you what do you mean by build a bitmap? And you know, it's just kind of dealing with just dealing with kind of the task at hand, like working with slices. So, and actually on that note, before we kind of continue back into this, I guess that's kind of like a perfect transition because one of our sponsors is actually Code School. And they've just launched a new electives course for anyone wanting to get started and go. The course is led by Carlos Sauza and has five levels. Level one's completely free. All you have to do is head over to codeschool.com slash go. Click on the giant start course for free button and uh, create a free account to get started. Level one has two videos and eight challenges. And the cool thing is, is that all of the coding will be done completely from your browser. You don't have to hassle with installing Go, messing with your Go path. Any of these things, you can just sign up for your account and get started. After you've made it through the first level, they have four more levels that have around 30 or so, 35 challenges that'll work your way through variables and type inference. Uh, You can learn about all the data types and error handling, collections. And then by the time you make it down into the level four and five, you get into some of the unique factors that bring many people to go, working with values and pointers, receivers, uh, interfaces and composition, uh, how to structure packages, writing current code, which is the primary reason a lot of people are coming to go. Make sure you head over to codeschool.com slash go, try out the first level. Thanks again to Code School for this awesome course and for sponsoring the show. So just before the break, Corey was asking you, JBD, what areas you think uh, can be improved to optimize for newcomers? I do not believe that we have an easy onboarding experience. Uh, When I started using this programming language, I learned so many things through code reviews and asking people that, uh, I mean, one of the obvious example is we still don't have uh, canonical tutorials for the tooling. And it just took me experience to get there uh, and feel productive. And, you know, at a certain point where I feel like, oh, yeah, I, I, I understand this language and its tools and everything. I think initially um, it was the community was um, more of exchanging ideas and knowledge. And it was easy. There was a I think lower barrier to contribute to one of the contributors code base and, you know, get your go code reviewed and information was so much easier to access. I I don't believe that it's true anymore. What do you feel about that? Uh, I guess I think that makes sense. I think maybe 
Uh, part of the, part of my comment there might be because I've been doing Go so long, it feels pretty natural. But uh, I guess I do remember when I came online, uh, the tool chain uh, I definitely struggle with. And I think that's what you're commenting about. Um, the language, not so much, right? Mm -hmm. But I, I guess I do remember struggling a little bit like, how do I get my tester on? How do I get this to build? How do I how do I install this thing? Um, and that, I think, was a lot of searching on Google for me to find that originally. Um, so I can I can definitely yeah. understand that. Yeah. And I, I kind of feel the same even for the, you know, our error messages from the tool chain. There are so many cryptic things. Once you learn what the message means, you are productive and understanding the case. But um, it just requires you always to Google things. And I think that's the goal of my project and how I see things, you know, how I prioritize uh, the these improvement projects. One of the uh, things that uh, I found very helpful in the current uh, tool chain is a little <laughs> tool that Ben Johnson wrote. It's called Goo, G-O-O. -O. Uh, and instead of running Go test, I run Goo test all the time because what it does is it detects the very first error in the stack output every time and copies it to my buffer and it highlights it. So it's nice, you know, when you when you do a go test and yeah. use your 15 errors, you really care about the first one, right? Yeah. Like, that's all you care about. Um, something that simple is actually incredibly helpful. Yeah, the the project the feedback I'm you know gathering is tons of like small improvements like this. It's just there are so many things that actually will make us to reconsider things. But there are tons of things to just improve by just like you know changing the order, making something more highlighted and small things like that. In thinking about improving things just by changing orders, I think um, it would be great if we had a website that was easy to use and contained a path from, from beginning to the, to the end, from newcomer to beginner programmer, newcomer experience programmer, newcomer to go, to very advanced uh, software development. And even if it's not, it's not that it's supposed to contain everything, but it's one path. And then people can veer from that path as they need, but at least they have one path. For example, I run into this website called uh, Go.java. has nothing to do with Go. It's just mm -hmm. called Go Java. And it has that. It has four menus at the top. It's learn Java skills, create and contribute, develop software, obviously, for more experienced developers, and lead your organization. Like, if you are an organization, what do you need? Great. Those are the paths. And th those four things, I think, will lead anybody from where they are to the next step. And what we have now is... This past year, I've seen the, the, the level of resources increasing dramatically, but it still is hard to find. You have to be sort of keeping tabs or searching, and you're, you're not sure, like, is this the best one that I should be looking at for me? Yeah. So we don't have that entry point anywhere. I mean, we do have the blogs, of course, we have the documentation, but I think we can improve immensely on that front. Uh, we've been thinking what Rust has done. Um, they have a book and it's just like more of canonical guidelines to do anything. It's not just like, you know, explaining the language, but uh, the entire ecosystem, you know, you have a binary, but like, you know, how to, what are, maybe we can include best practices for production and things like that. Um, I, I do think that the blog was sort of like, use being used to you know publish white 
peppers, but like it's not quite organized and it doesn't give you a some sort of navigation. I, I do really believe that we need some sort of another medium to write guidelines, more canonical guidelines, which may also, you know, contain what you've been talking or uh, the thing that I was mentioning with the tool chain where there's, you know, no canonical way to see what I can do with this project, with this aspect. So I, I agree. And I think there are multiple people agreeing on that. And there are some sort of people who are already working on on it. Awesome. Yeah, I think that tends to be the struggle, right, is I think there's a lot of resources for teaching the semantics of the language. But then people look at it and they're like, OK, well, how do I get from A to B? You know, yeah, I, yeah. I understand these these different constructs of the language, but, you know, I want to build a uh, a web service. Where do I yeah. start? What does a typical structure of an application look like? Am I doing yeah. it right? And I think people give up there, which is interesting. We we have more than like we are thinking more than just, you know, production or like building some of the best practices are about building systems. Um, I think, you know, the next year or two will be more about trying to understand what to how we can communicate best practices once you have a go binary. Um, yeah, you have a Go binary. What is next? What are our best practices for production? Or, you know, what we can teach people to, you know, think, um, how to think, you know, building large systems um, or, you know, what we can do for diagnostics, instrumentation, profiling, tracing and debugging. Um, and some of these, you know, items require actually some community wide solutions. Um, so the next one or two year will be more like investigating what to do now. And, you know, the entire, I think, e ecosystem should be more focused on um, playing with the binary rather than achieving the binary. Hmm. That's interesting. So I guess it's probably just part of the growth of a language, right? I mean, we're still very, very early on. So kind of those types of things are kind of maybe the natural progression in the language. I mean, how, how would you contrast that to other languages? I would say that it's the typical, um, I mean, I, um, the only language I was involved with, I think from the very beginning to end was Java. Uh, I think it's just natural that you expect people to focus on readability idioms, learning the language and mastering it. And then like, Taking it to the next level is actually about building really, you know, good production stuff with it and supporting the production teams. And um, I, I do believe it's natural in every language that the ship, you know, focus will be shifted more to the other aspects because there will be more knowledge and, you know, um, on the idioms in the language. So it's I think the it's very natural that we are shifting that towards that way and now you said you had some other your other points you you kind of really wanted to discuss for the kind of the wider community to to be in on right yeah i i want to say um i think in order to you know understand so understanding what we are going to be working on in the next two years i think is just the biggest challenge we have because the scale is really big and you know there are too few people on this project working full time and uh, the community is is getting grow, you know, growing. But um, I do believe that like our communication is pretty broken. And the the main reason I, um, 
let's put it this way. I think like all the, you know, the random topics we talked about is always just being, you know, talked in random conversations. Um, we need more structure probably and better communication to achieve anything uh, that will expand, you know, our um, impact region. Um, I would say that like, what I really see missing in our community is there is no point of, you know, talking about transmission feedback. I, I do say that, like, I mean, in the beginning, we had more central points um, and our community is getting really big. So it's really healthy that we have, you know, distributed communities. But I think like as we are um, getting more distributed, it's so much harder to gather feedback. and. Only a very small portion of the community is actually contributing to the development of the language. I think this is pretty expected, but um, I, I see really obvious cases where people are complaining on Twitter, but then I see that there's no issue filed. And I, I'm, a, I'm just trying to understand uh, what is the missing thing that uh, makes that person, you know, not feeling encouraged to, you know, file it as an issue. That's interesting. So have, have you seen the way um, the Kubernetes process is developed? So this is actually going to be what I mentioned in the Free Software Friday mm -hmm, section, but mm -hmm. I think it, it kind of fits in here. Um, so they run um, special interest groups. Mm -hmm. So there's kind of like split up. That was, that was basically what I was trying to achieve. Like I was about to explain. I do believe uh, the only way to get there is just creating focus groups and like work groups probably. And uh, we pretty much like have an understanding of which areas we should invest. And there are already, you know, so many people from the community who are working on, on their, you know, small projects, personal projects or their company um, sponsored projects. But uh, there's no discussion around those topics in a collective and systematic way. So there seems to be a recognition from you. Is this recognition shared by the other Go team members? And do you find that there is resistance or you trying to figure out, is everybody trying to figure out if this really applies or are you already moving in the direction of trying to find solutions for that? So in, in the uh, Go team, there is a subgroup for cloud-related um, projects we have at Google and beyond. And this team is, you know, mainly responsible for, you know, just making sure that everybody is on the, um, everybody is committing to good APIs and trying to understand what, how they can support the community. And for example, this particular team, sub team was pretty supportive of the work groups because, you know, their work and they, as I said, like the biggest challenge is the scale is so big. And they would like their work to be impactful. And uh, listening to the community and trying to react according to the necessity of the you know, community requirements is, a, is, a, is the top priority, I think, for the Go team. And um, this work, we're trying to establish this work group and see if it's going to work. Because... Um, if our communication is not efficient or people are not participating or if we are not really making the you know communication accessible, this model is not going to work either. So we would like to try with at least one 
uh, work group to see how it goes. And from that mo point on, um, there's been other people who suggested other work groups, other, uh, uh, other responsibilities. And I think this will naturally happen because, you know, without this um, structure or some sort of like giving ownership or, um, you know, collecting, you know, more collective feedback from the users or the contributors, it's just impossible to scale the language. Yeah, I think the microgroups um, is definitely a way to go there. I think some of it is when you're on a macro level and it's like we just expect the entire world to weigh their opinion in. Um, it's it's hard. It's not approachable. Yeah. Um, and for me personally, you know, I, the Go community is fantastic. And I find like mm -hmm. people that are in the Go community, I find them to be really approachable. Right. Yeah. And now, this is this is just my perception, but I've never felt like the Go team has been approachable. Um, and I'm not saying that's their fault. I just feel like there's there's no conduit that I have that's, you know, hey, I want to express my opinion other than if I tweet something out and, you know, hopefully I don't get any backlash from that. Um, so the approachability there, I think, might be part of the problem as well. I think the main problem is uh, we don't have a channel to brainstorm ideas. Currently, you know, you have the issue tracker and, you know, you have the proposal process, which you definitely need to come up with something really mature and working in order to propose and, you know, got it reviewed. Um, there's nothing in between. Um, it's so hard to, I think, understand or, you know, just like work on um, existing random ideas or like brainstorm about what could be done um, just because of lack of that, like, you know, that lightweight, I think, I don't know. I, I do believe that like it's the lack of medium rather than people are not trying to listen because renting on Twitter or you know, there is some, like, I think each team member has some capacity and we need to provide data to them in a more aggregate way so they can, you know, consume and effectively solve. Well, I think also just letting the community know that you're looking for direction, you're looking for input too, you know, that'll be a big deal. I think most yeah. of us just kind of go along our merry way and we figure, hey, this is Google and they've got this under control and they know where they're headed, right? Well, that, that's not true. I mean, Google actually hired me to work on this project to give feedback to the team. I, I do really believe that Google also doesn't really, well, people think that it, Google has a really big control on this language. Google, Google didn't really care about this language for a very long time. It's just becoming more popular uh, very recently, but um, I think the perception is wrong. It's more about having no channel and without having a good channel, it's just impossible to, you know, have a healthy communication. And it may sound more, um, you know, isolating or um, ignoring the actual facts just because you don't have an efficient way to gather this feedback and, you know, execute on that. Right. And I think my point is, again, I'm in, in, in no way trying to insult Google or, or Go or the team. Like, I want to be really clear, right? I think it's the fact that, you know, I'm pretty involved in the community. And so if I've got that perception that, you know, I, you know, I don't think um, I'm probably alone there, right? So I think it's one of those things where it's really good that you're talking about this and really letting people know, like, no, like, we, we want to go this direction and we're looking for this participation. Yeah, 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 I agree. I think this is not really communicated well, but I don't really believe that anybody is against of this. Now, the people that will form these committees, can they come from the from outside of Google? Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't really believe that like having more Googlers on this project is going to help because 
it really shaped around, you know, Google. And it's, I think, kind of like blocking itself or, you know, blocking its reach because it's so, you know, totally dependent on the Google culture. I think um, everything should be outside of Google, ideally. And for the Google Cloud Platform work, Working Group, at least that's what I understand. It's already in motion. Oh, uh, that's not the Google Cloud. We don't care about a specific provider. I'm sorry, what working group did you say you were going to start with? We were thinking about a cloud work group more than, you know, any provider. We were just trying to understand more of like production related story and beyond and, you know, support APIs or what we can contribute to the community uh, to make it easier for all this, you know, you know, we're trying to achieve things that are provider agnostic. And do you have already any guideline for people to raise their hand and say, I want to participate in this working group? And uh, so do you have like a, a criteria for selection for people to join in? So th this is still a proposal uh, internally, uh, and I'm working on to finalize it. I am actually, I wrote the proposal myself. And uh, the initial idea was to initiate some sort of feedback from different people and understand the requirement for a, a work group. And if people agrees, I think we, what we do is just continue. I don't have specific people in mind, uh, but as long as I announce this thing, I think I will just try to you know, gather feedback from people. And I, I think naturally people who are given feedback will be a part of the work group in the future and it's published too so for like the kubernetes groups the way they operate the special interest groups is there's a published list of them and if you're interested in the way networking works or scheduling you have all the contact details there who the primaries are they have weekly meetings where they do demos and stuff and you can yeah. comment on that stuff so i think there's a lot of that stuff that i think that could be played with to get everybody kind of interested in specific areas you know collaborating yeah. better like you said you're just throwing it out into the sea when you're you're complaining on twitter and you hope that somebody who has the mm -hmm. means to solve that problem for you sees it i think we can also solve this like the core team doesn't have bandwidth to think about these issues by just you know sharing the responsibility with other groups and naturally just because there will be a group that is assigned to you know think about these problems i do believe that like the feedback loop will be more efficient and I think another thing that you wanted to talk about was kind of like why languages succeed and fail. But before we do that, let's talk about our next sponsor, Linode. If you head over to linode.com slash go time, you can get your very own Linode up and running in seconds. Choose your flavor of Linux, the amount of resources you need, and choose from any of their eight data centers spread across the world. Uh, you get full root access. You can run VMs in containers. If you haven't had a chance to play with Kubernetes, now's a great time to go there and spin up a couple of Linodes, three nodes who cost you 30 bucks a month. They, even if you wanted to play with it for the weekend, they've got hourly billing. They also have a great CLI app so that you don't even need to log into their website if you want to deploy or tear down some of your Linodes and a great HTTP API. Even though there's not a Go SDK now, but we'd love to invite you to create one and open source it. And if you do, please come talk to us. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, if you head over to linode.com slash gotime, you can use the code gotime20 to get two months free, which is a $20 credit with unlimited uses. Make sure to tell your friends and head over to linode.com slash gotime. 
So you were talking about uh, language succeeding and failure, mostly due to communication. Well, before getting there, I, I've seen something on the um, Slack channel um, says like um, Aaron is saying, you know, working code speaks louder than work groups to start serious conversation. I, I partially agree with this, but partially disagree. And um, I think experimentation or community driven projects has a really small scope. Uh, you cannot achieve community wide, you know, APIs by starting you know experimental projects or like you know personal projects because you're just like by design excluding so many aspects because you know you're restricting yourself to your own goals and uh, i think the idea behind work groups is to see what else is there otherwise it's just easy to execute working code and you know solve a small aspect but i don't really believe that working group the main goal behind working groups is, you know, solving um, specific problems in, a, in its own, you know, small scope. One thing to keep in mind when you bring up these concerns is that you are looking at it from the perspective of scaling the use of, the use of Go. We are relatively new, maybe not so new anymore. I don't even know if we should be saying we're so new. And we are trending upwards in terms of adoption. Mm -hmm. And you are concerned that we don't have such a great communication. We don't have such great channels for feedback. Feedbacks are being given out there without it being incorporated into the people who are working with the language in documentation and everything that goes with it. Mm -hmm. And you are thinking, well, if, if it's the, this way now, how is it going to be when the community is double? A lot of people think this community is going to grow a lot. So I think you're right to be thinking this way. And it's, yeah, I, I, I from what you said, I think the having working groups or, or special interest groups is a great idea. It cannot, it will not hurt to have feedback. And I, I think it can only be used for improvements. In the past month, I, I received so much feedback about um, we should, you know, communicate in more of roadmap internals and things that because, you know, the developer or programmers um, from a programmer perspective, you would like to understand what is going on and what is the future will be like because you design things in a particular way. Um, so it's, you know, your design is efficient um, with uh, on top of that underlying black box, uh, which is the language runtime and language itself in this case. So um, it's, I do believe that like having work groups will increase um, this communication with the core team and the community members a lot, because given that they will be involved in, you know, maybe design, maybe, um, you know, what is coming up next, uh, I think it, they will be able to receive more canonical information and um, can share it from there rather than, you know, reverse engineering, debugging, trying to understand it by experience. I think the biggest uh, benefit that I see from this idea is having a group of people that is a buffer between the language team and the community, because obviously the language team is only going to be so big. And, and also, 
to me, obviously, they should be participating in important decisions as far as the language and the ecosystem because they have a ton of knowledge. And they, especially uh, the philosophy of the language, that counts a lot, and they are the experts. And by having people, one-off proposals and talking to different people here and there, and people change and rotate, and they don't really know where people are coming from with suggestions, I can only imagine how hard that must be for the language team to participate with in this constantly revolving set of people who are approaching them. So having a group that is, of course, not a forever group, but a group that's going to stay for a while and focus on one aspect of the language and the ecosystem. And so that group, having the trust of the language team and the trust of the community, it can only make it better. Yeah, I, I think it's impossible to scale if you're an engineer working on the core team to, you know, engage as much as you write code. They they are already like really productive and you cannot really ask them to like expose themselves to all these channels to gather feedback and understand what is going on. I think I would never expect anybody to, you know, waste their time on that because uh, I think their time is really valuable and it needs to be canalized to the right things. And uh, with this like buffer groups, as you said, uh, we will give them some, you know, knowledge and uh, some so- sort of summary of what is going on. And that's what they need. I also think the the special interest groups are really cool because a lot of times I think when people are working on their projects and they're looking at Go and saying, oh, if it could do this or if I could have this from it, that would help my project, but they maybe don't think that it applies to the wider group, so they don't really engage. And if they knew there was a special interest group that was surrounding the topics they're already concerned with, I think that would really help draw more of the community in as well. I totally agree. Um, I think for really high-level things or brainstorming, people see like it's um, it's just like absurd to talk to the team uh, or you know explain a little bit of their ideas because nothing is finalized. The people are just seeking for some sort of community to you know, build on their initial ideas. And um, the work groups will be, I think, the perfect solution uh, to iterate on ideas, um, regardless of it's, uh, you know, it's obvious or not, or I think you know, we need some sort of, as I said, middle channel to feel you know, encouraged to talk. I think it triggers ideas too, though. Like, so, like I had to say, kind of the special interest groups for Kubernetes will do weekly meetings and they'll do demos. So, when you mm-hmm. take part in these, you'll see something demoed and it'll trigger your own ideas where you can contribute feedback then. And I, there, I know there's been scenarios where I've seen stuff coming down the pipeline where it was a real problem I had that I thought I had to develop something else. And it just wasn't in my thought process that it could be solved another way. And you, these things kind of trigger more thoughts. And not everybody's accustomed to reading kind of like the draft proposal form of things that, are, you know, so they just don't participate. There's very few people who go in and read those drafts and then comment on them. Most people want to see working code. They want to see a demo. They, they want to have verbal discussions about it. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I think a demo is the only way to communicate. Um, just a little prototype. But nobody is going to read your proposal or in written in a very formal way with no visualizations. 
So I, I do agree that meetings are awesome. Um, we'll call this one the first one. Yeah, I guess so. I this is so. the work group. This is the work group that actually thinks about the work groups and, you know, kind of like coming with the strategy how they should work. And now we're getting meta. We've got a, a work yeah. group yeah, for work group. Meta work group. <laughs> now, if you had your pick, I'm curious, uh, what would be the top one or two work groups you would like to see? That's a great question. I think, well, I don't want to really reveal my ideas, but I think that there are things that is really um, obvious to me, such as, well, this is not entirely engineering related. Uh, the first one is docs group. I think without a doc, well, our, our current, I think, blocker is documentation and, you know, explaining that conventions and things. And I do not really believe that the older the team is really caring about documentation. I think they're seeing things when, when you know, within their perspective. Um, and I, I do believe that like a community group can totally tell them, you know, what is more obviously missing. Um, so that that's one of the, I think maybe docs and outreach together because, you know, community is already doing so much work in a very in unstructured way. You know, it, every conferences or blogs or, you know, everywhere else. I would love to see some sort of central group so people can share uh, knowledge with each other and, you know, create material for each other. So, you know, writing and talking and um, documents and things become easier. Yeah, big plus one to that. I, I'm a huge fan of a docs group. Yep. See, every time somebody says docs, I think D-O-X, like publishing private information about people. <laughs> <laughs> we just get together and dox people. <laughs> is it is it my accent? No, no, no. no. Even when That's Corey said thing. it. <laughs> it's, both ways it's pronounced was, the same. I was same, <laughs> no. It has the same, um, what is it called? DOC. Phonetically. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Uh, so I think we're actually running a little over time. Did you guys want to talk about any any projects or news that are kind of out? One of the biggest ones I saw was uh, Netflix released their new Chaos Monkey, which was really cool, and that's all written in Go now. Do you do do you do Chaos testing at all? Any of you? No, I think I'm just going to wake up one day and uh, go to our cloud team and tell them <laughs> I enabled it and see what happens. <laughs> I'm sure they'll appreciate it. Just just let them be surprised. <laughs> I think it's actually, I think it's a really fun way of testing. The first time I saw that, I, it's it's really creative. I mean, you should assume that everything dies. So yeah, at Google we have this sort of thing once a while, and everything is just like literally off. And I'm not participating anymore, so I'm so happy. But you know, if we have something in production, good luck. Yeah, I do chaos testing. Uh, it's called release to production. <laughs> <laughs> I don't often test my code, but when I do, I do it in production. Always. <laughs> Always. The chaos is actually happening in the office, not in production. <laughs> <laughs> now, yeah, I mean, most people uh, don't really test that way. So it, it was an interesting paradigm a, a number of years ago when it was released. I just found it really interesting that they re completely rewrote um, the chaos monkey in Go. So I think uh, Scott Mansfield had mentioned that when he was on the show that they were working on it. So that's finally open sourced. And a related project that I actually ran into over the week was, uh, I guess it's pronounced Pumba, Pumba. I'm not sure. 
Um, but it's uh, chaos testing for Docker, which was interesting. And it has a lot of like the, you know, kill your container and restart it and um, send random signals at the process and things like <laughs> that. But another interesting aspect of it was it allows you to emulate network conditions where mm-hmm. you, you experience packet loss coming into your container or packets being reordered or corruption and stuff like that. So I have not played with it yet, so I can't give it like uh, this is an awesome stamp of approval, but it definitely looks interesting and I want to start playing with it. Do, do they, Does it come with a pre-config for AWS network uh, uh, situations so you can basically replicate what <laughs> AWS is for you right away? <laughs> There's just a AWS equals true flag. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, uh, I'll drop the link in the channel for anybody who's uh, listening live. But yeah, I, I ran across it uh, late last week, I think. And uh, I haven't got a chance to play with it yet, but it looked really cool. And we know 173 came out, and I think there was just a few um, bug fixes there. I don't know whether there was anything major there, but it's a point release, so that's to be expected. Anybody else run across any uh, interesting projects this week? I don't have anything this week. I don't have any projects, um, but I did want to shout out to some community people. Um, about a year ago, I moved back to the Midwest, as most of you know, and I started some meetups in Chicago and Minneapolis because the Go community just wasn't on track there. Uh, and it's been a little bit over a year, and the people that have stepped in to help me do that have really stepped up, and they've basically taken over. And uh, again, this is all about community for me, and it's just great to have you know Varun in Chicago and Eric Jacknick and Calvin in, in Minneapolis. And um, it's just fantastic to see how they've really gotten these Go groups back online uh, and to see these communities rebooted. And we have a... Meetup group, uh, meetup channel in Slack, don't we? Is yes, it called we do. Meetup? Meetup organizers, I think. Yeah, so that's where everybody that Corey just mentioned is, including Corey. Yeah, meetup organizers. Yeah, we have to applaud anybody who kind of helps grow the community, whether that's through code or, or writing um, tutorials and blog posts or doing conferences or anything that continues to kind of further the growth of the community. and. Kind of as uh, JBD's been talking about today, the um, kind of collectively molding the language together and rather than kind of uh, just throwing stuff over the fence and hoping for the best, we start trying to find ways to to collaborate and work on it together. So we typically close out the show with kind of our free software Friday where we kind of uh, give shout outs to uh, open source projects or people that are kind of saving the day for us. I think Corey and I both have actually already uh, spilled the beans on ours. So <laughs> the, who I was going to think is the Kubernetes special interest groups and kind of, you know, to the point we've been talking about today, I think that there's a lot of value in that and it helps everybody collectively mold the project into uh, what they want it to be and, and demos and, and vocal discussions about um, concerns related to specific areas that matter to you. I think that's extremely valuable. And then, Corey, you just you just said yours. Yes, I did. Do you want to say it again? Uh, yeah, just a shout out, like you say, to all the all the organizers of local meetups. It's just such a big deal. And and especially uh, in my mind right now are the organizers of uh, Chicago, which is Varun and Minneapolis, which is Eric, Jack, Nick and Calvin. Uh, they have just done a superb job of taking communities that really the Go community just kind of fizzled a little bit from a meetup standpoint. And they've got them back on track and they are going really, really well now. Uh, and have great attendance. So it's just, it's great to see those cities back online. And then how about you, Carlicia? I want to uh, give a shout out to the most wondrous thing. It's the Gopher Slack bot. 
uh, Flory Patan, he works on that. And it's, uh, I don't even know how to describe it. You type, <laughs> you add gopher space help, and you get a listing of all the commands you can use. And it's sweet. It'll give you a bunch of goodies. So just go ahead and do it. On gopher Slack, of course. I'm, I'm typing it in now. Slash gopher help. At gopher. Uh, oh, at space. gopher. At gopher. Yeah, it's a user, but it's a bot. Okay, here we go. There we go. Messaging me. <laughs> Do I need to oh, direct message it or? <laughs> you just add it in a channel. You... And it, it direct messages you back. <laughs> but... JBG has the good made a good point. You can totally do a direct message and just type things out there, so you you oh, don't cool. have to you won't be spamming your channel. I think we channel. just crashed it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is it is open source and pull requests are accepted. <laughs> this is kind of cool though. Like just type in newbie resources and recommended channels, and that kind of makes it more accessible. Is that, I mean, it, it, the Gopher Slack has kind of grown so much. There's so many different channels in there and trying to find your way around. So this is kind of cool. Yeah, it's super cool. And of course, we just, I don't know if we did it, but it, it crashed. <laughs> That's right. Speaking of crashes, I didn't get a chance to mention this. So way earlier in the show before our first sponsor break, I actually crashed. I was gone for a while. I don't think anybody noticed. But the funny part about it was it was after JBD said like, I'm I'm supposed to be a power user. And the second she said power user, boom, I got black screen of death, like stack trace <laughs> on a MacBook Pro. <laughs> it was scary. Well, that's part of my job to expose to all those screens. So, you know, no one else can needs to go through the same thing. I just I died laughing like the whole time. I'm like, oh, man, I hope this comes up quick. But I'm looking, I have never in the whole time of owning a Mac ever had a stack trace on a screen. <laughs> you say power user and boom. Uh, priceless. So um, you don't have to throw anything in there, but if you have something, um, we'd, we'd love to hear a project you might want to give a shout out to, too. Well, um, well I don't know. I don't want to like... I think highlight anything at this point. I I didn't. I have a couple of things to mention, but I I don't really think that it's necessary. No problem. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what what did you want to mention? Well, it's just it was just a couple of random ideas. Um, I've seen. Um, so there are some co-op um implementations I I came across. It's just really nice to see like some of the you know new generation network protocols are implemented uh, for Go, and. I'm I'm just like playing with a couple of things, um, just like working, building my co-op networks. And it, it, this protocol is like basically useful uh, in IoT space. And um, it's just really interesting to see like people are, you know, investing time and uh, trying to achieve things that we would like to achieve. Yeah, and I think we definitely need to um, link out to some of your repositories too because you've got a lot of repositories for hardware kind of interoperability with go too yeah i think most of my um repositories are private at this point oh you're holding out on us yeah i have so so much stuff like in private uh, i was playing out with tons of like uh devices lately to figure out the right apis for this you know peripheral uh io protocols that i was mentioning for a while 
and uh, maybe I can like release a couple of them and share them as well while we are talking about IoT. Okay, yeah. I mean, if you do that, um, we'll we'll make sure we link any of them in the uh, show notes when the show actually gets released. All right. And I lost my time because I got rebooted due to uh, your awesomeness. <laughs> <laughs> well, this was a meeting. This was a formal meeting for the meta, you know, work groups. So <laughs> I, I just want to like conclude with, by saying that I think people are people really think and there is no intention to, you know, isolate, you know, from the actual problems the community is experiencing or anything. But trying to find the right channel is it, it will take some experimentation because I think uh, the language grew really quickly and the team was really small. So um, I think this was kind of expected that it won't be ideal if, you know, there's a rapid growth and it unfortunately happened. So we need to consider and, you know, options and act to make things better. Growth is always painful. And I, I think we'll get through this. This is just one one hurdle in the kind of yeah. evolution of the language. Yeah, yeah. So I think with that, somebody gave me the time in Slack. We're at like an hour and 33 minutes. So we get to have like an especially long episode this time, <laughs> which is awesome. And there's so much more I want to talk about too. Like I really want to get into music and hardware and I don't think we want to have like a three hour episode, which stinks. <laughs> so we, we might have to get you back on just to talk that stuff. We can have like, I don't know, just random, you know, live streaming. It doesn't have to be, I think, particularly go time or anything. Uh, it might be interesting to just to like brainstorm. I think uh, what I would like to achieve with work groups is something, you know, where you show up and talk to people on random things, not music, not my personal music, but, you know, anything related to Go. Um, because talking just really, you know, helps you to, as you said, you know, going through like different ideas and seeing different options. And it, it's just really healthy and enjoyable. Yeah. And I think that's one thing people miss when working remotely, too, is that kind of interaction and triggering ideas yeah. with each other. Yeah. And it, it humanizes people. You realize, like, when you, you're talking to somebody, the way that they come off in, in a draft proposal or a GitHub pull request review or something like that, like, that you perceive people one way. But when you actually get to interact with them, you know, face to face or at least verbally, yeah. you get to kind of understand people are human. Yeah. So I think with that, we should close out the show. It was really nice to be here. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Thank you for coming on. This has been a lot of fun. And I, I think I think we should figure out something for kind of some sort of like live streaming or like playing with electronics like over YouTube or something. I think that'd be kind of fun. It might be interesting to just like record a little bit uh, for the go time. Um, just my, you know, my vocal capabilities. Oh, my God. Yeah. So... <laughs> I know I'm not promising anything, but you know, right. maybe it's a challenge for me. My personal challenge is to like record something for you. So I challenge you right now. We have some closing notes that I'll make my way through, but I want to hear like a crazy goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't, I don't know when we cut in for what's going to be produced, but uh, for anybody who's listening to this, that wasn't live through that. It was, it was absolutely awesome and hilarious to hear some of the, the like voiceovers that uh, JVD was doing when we first got on the call. <laughs> and I'm challenging her now to end end the show with with a goodbye after I get through the notes. That's just really crazy. 
All right. <laughs> so thank you, everybody on the panel for being here. Uh, thank you for Cor to Corey for stepping in for Brian while he's out. Oh, thanks for having me. I mean, it was an, an honor to be here. Thank you. So glad. Definitely thank JBD for coming on the show and talking with us today. A uh, huge thank you to our sponsors, Linode and Code School, for sponsoring the episode. And again, like I said, please go check them out. Uh, show them some love. Keep us on the air. Definitely want to encourage everybody to share the show with uh, fellow programmers. You can go to GoTime FM and subscribe. Even if you are subscribed, if you haven't seen the new website, you should go check it out. Uh, Changelog and GoTime uh, did like a whole huge rebranding, and it's it's freaking awesome. Um, follow us on Twitter at GoTimeFM. And you can ping us on github.com slash gotimefm slash ping if you want to be on the show or have questions or have ideas for content. And with that, we are ready for your goodbye. Thank you. Oh, sorry. I just need my really low voice. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>